welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. This was a conversation that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. It's incredibly different than what we've come to expect on this show, as you will come to find out. But I was intrigued when I first spoke with this guest about having him on the show. And after recording with him, I knew I had to sneak him in right under the wire to be part of the spooky season celebration. Because what is more unnerving, captivating, gut-wrenching, spine-tingling than some true crime, baby? My guest was an officer with the New York City Police Department. The first part of his 20-year career was spent patrolling the streets, looking for the bad guys. The last 10 years he spent as a detective. Since retiring, he's written six books, most of which deal with cases he's worked, experiences with the darkest side of the criminal mind, homicides, grand theft auto, and some of the crazier things he's witnessed while on patrol. He's joined me today to share some of these cases, complete with close calls, grisly deaths, and a darker sense of humor that can only come with having been in this line of work for so long. So settle in, tune all the rest out. And please enjoy my conversation with NYPD retired detective and author, Vic Ferrari. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We're doing something a little different today. We're going to be taking a field trip away from the paranormal and dipping our toes into some true crime. My guest today is a retired 20-year veteran of the NYPD, and he is the author of a bunch of books about time he spent with the department, cases, uh, Growing up in the Bronx, stories galore, and I cannot wait to hear them. His name is Vic Ferrari. Thank you, Vic, for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's it's so good to uh, see you, to finally meet you. I've been really looking forward to this, uh, doing something a little different. But like we were talking, you know, it is part of this world. So I'm, I'm excited for this. Yeah, me too. This, this, this should be fun. So... Uh, 20 years in the department, you must have seen some crazy things, but uh, I usually like to start out just uh, having my guest introduce themselves a little bit to my audience, if you don't mind. Sure. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department. I'm a Bronx kid born and raised. I always wanted to be a police officer and a detective. I grew up in the 70s watching The Rockford Files and Dirty Harry. So at an early age, I knew what I wanted to do. By the age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall. And you'd have a posse of little boys walking around with a wanted poster, some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Louisiana. And we'd be in a Bronx deli looking at like, this fucker could be him. You know, we're looking at the puddle. So by the age of 20, I took the police exam. I uh, was lucky enough to, to get hired by the New York City Police Department. I had a 20. 20 year wonderful career. I worked in various units from plain clothes to DUI. And my last 10 years I spent as a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division where I worked on chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, anything in, involved in the auto theft industry, mob control businesses, etc. After I retired from the NYPD, I got into writing. I've written a series of books about the, the behind the scenes look at the New York City Police Department. And you say uh, lucky enough to get into the police department back when you were 20. You're not lying. Uh, something that my audience doesn't know about me is I actually tried to become a police officer when I was living in New Orleans. Yeah, in OPD, it's a tough process. You know, it is and it isn't. Um, back then, well, 
the New York City Police Department at any given time is between 30 and 40,000 members. So we hire in bulk. A smaller police academy class is 500 recruits. A large one could be 2,500. So, I mean, back then they did a pretty good job of screening people. And I mean, there's a ton of psychologicals, physical exams. They came around my neighborhood talking to neighbors, former employers to see, you know, did I get fired? What was my mindset, et cetera. So, I mean, I was lucky. I mean, it's a job I really wanted and I was lucky enough to get. Yeah, yeah, no, they they go in depth. So, I mean, that's basically what the process was, what you just explained, all all the steps. So uh, just kind of tore your life up, tore my life up anyway, for about six, six months straight. So, all right. So you were with the auto crime division for those last 10 years that you were with the department. Um, I'd love to jump right into some stories. Tell us some just gritty, awesome cases that you worked on, some auto theft stories. Just just get into it. Spare no details. Listen, I, I could give you whatever you want. Do you want do, do you want uh, you want to hear auto theft, uh, you know, homicides? You tell me what you want. Oh, we're we're working up to homicide. Believe okay. me. <laughs> All right. So in the auto crime division, we worked large organized crime cases or if the numbers were up you got to remember in the early 90s we averaged 150,000 stolen vehicles in the five boroughs so in addition to hitting you know the big timers we would also go after the garden variety pain in the ass car thieves and kids that were just rolling around in stolen cars um i worked on a case when we had a chinese military intelligence officer that came to the united states he settled in brooklyn he met up with a jamaican middleman in the bronx And basically he paid the Jamaican middleman $5,000 a car. The order was for Audi A6s. He wanted at least 30 a month. And what the the Jamaican middleman would do was with the $5,000, he would, he would farm out the the thefts to these uh, car theft rings in the Bronx. And he would pay the car thieves between 500 and a thousand dollars per car. So these guys were stealing up to 30 Audis a month. What would happen was they would steal the cars, they would bring them out to Brooklyn, they'd park them on the street, let them cool off, make sure the cars didn't have low jack or GPS. Then the Chinese had rented a a warehouse and the stolen vehicles would go into the warehouse a couple at a time where they had Chinese nationals working inside. They would drive two stolen Audis into a shipping container. They would take the air out of the tires so the car would sit lower in the container. Then they would build a platform above it that they could drive two more cars above it so three to four stolen vehicles were going out per container. Then once the containers were filled, they'd create a phony manifest. They'd call a shipping company that had nothing to do with it, but the shipping company would take the stolen stolen Audis in the shipping container out to Newark, New Jersey, where they were put on trains and railed across the United States to Long Beach, California. And then they were shipped to Shanghai. So with the police department as large as mine, we had Asian cops that we had. We needed Asian cops to work the wiretaps in Mandarin and Cantonese to listen to the Chinese nationals, what they were up to. Then we had Spanish detectives monitoring the telephone lines of the car thieves. So we had this international car thief, the car theft ring going with 30, at least 30 cars a month being stolen and shipped out of the country. But what we quickly realized is on the phones, the car thieves were in the murder for hire business. And most of them had bodies on them and they were bragging about it in their phone conversation. Like, you don't want to wind up like that guy in Connecticut. Remember when I shot this guy? So when we actually took that case down, we were able to clear up about 15 homicides. 
Wow. wow. That's such an intricate case. Oh, my gosh. There's a lot of pieces moving, huh? Oh, yeah. Multiple agencies, too. All, all the time. Yeah. Well, um, I, I did want to ask you, it might sound silly, but uh, did your last name come into play when you <laughs> decided on this career? No, that's not really my last name. Um, <laughs> I figured. <laughs> if you ever watched the television show Taxi, um, there was a character by the name of Lodka. He was like this Lithuanian mechanic. He was meek and very mild-mannered. And when he would take a blow to the head, he would become this womanizing, cool guy, you know, with the shirt unbuttoned and too much cologne. And he would torment Alex Rieger. And I always liked that name. And I did work in the auto crime division, so I thought it would be a good fit. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, you know, you, you did start to lead into it with the, uh, the, the murder for hire. I think we can definitely step into the homicide, some homicide stories, because I imagine it's like a Venn diagram, like all of these departments kind of bleed into, well, so to speak, bleed into each other a little bit, kind of overlap. Is that, is that the case? Some departments have really good cooperation. Other times you don't, you get static, uh, they, they won't return calls. It's almost like a kid holding so many candy bars and he doesn't want to pass them out. That, that happens with different departments. But for the most part, we all get along. That was organized crime. When I, when I was in, on patrol in uniform, I actually walked into a couple of homicide scenes like right after they happened. If Ooh, you want to yeah, yeah, please. So in the early 90s, it was a Saturday night. I'm on patrol with my partner who actually, he, he, he died a couple of years later, but we're coming out of the station house and a female cop hands us a slip of paper and she says, I don't know, this came in through the phone. It didn't come over 911. I think there's a cardiac in this building, right? So we rush over, we figure someone's having a heart attack. It's a busy Saturday night. We're running up the stairs. It's a six story walk up. And we hear screaming in the hallway. We go into this apartment. There's a bunch of people in there and they're all crying. We make, we make our way through the apartment and they had a galley kitchen. So as I'm coming around this corner, I see a pair of legs on the floor. There's a woman on the floor. She's been stabbed to death multiple times. Her son's laying on top of her and he's just screaming and wailing, mom, mom, mom. So I tell him, I says, you got to get up. Come on, get up. I pull him off. And the, the, the kitchen area was covered in blood. So if you know, if you've ever cut yourself, the blood is bright red, but over time it turns a brown or rust color. And, the, and the, all the blood had dried. So it was fairly obvious that she had been laying there for many hours. So I bring him into the, into the living room. I tell him to take a seat. The apartment's been ransacked. And we're not putting the screws to him. We're just asking him basic questions. Like, when was the last time you saw your mother? And he's like, he went from being hysterical to, when was the last time I saw my mother? About four hours ago. So every question I asked this guy, he started getting weird and asked, repeating my questions, buying time. So then if you look around the apartment, yeah, it's been ransacked, but it's staged. So when a burglar breaks into your house or apartment, they're taking things out of your drawers and dumping them and going through it. They don't dump your drawers and put them right back in, which is the whole apartment. Oh, was wow. Everybody put the drawers back in, right? Her handbag was turned upside down, placed right side up. There were credit cards there. That, that, that raised, you know, a couple of red flags. So the detectives took him into the precinct to interview him while I was tasked to working with the technicians doing the crime scene. So a couple hours later, I make my way back to the precinct. I'm going to vouch for all this evidence. And I asked the detectives, I says, well, what's going on with this guy? And they go, listen, we don't know if he did it or not, but he definitely knows a lot more than he's saying. And the victim had three brothers that lived across the street. It was the, the, the young man's uncles. 
And they were asking a lot of questions and the detectives told them, listen, you know, your nephew knows more than he's saying. So the young man wanted to go home. He didn't ask for a lawyer, but he wanted to go home. So at that point, you know, if he asked for a lawyer, all bets are off. So you kind of got to back off at that point. So the detectives let him go home and they figured, all right, we'll make a run at him first thing in the morning. So in the New York City Police Department at a homicide scene, the first cops that arrive, they have to go to the morgue the next day to identify the body for identification purposes. So what you got to do is, believe it or not, this sounds bizarre, but it's true. There's an oak tag, a little tag with a piece of string to it. It's called a 95 tag. And you write all your information and the deceased information and you tie it around their, de- their, their big toe. So the following morning, I wake up, I had very little sleep, I throw on my uniform, I make my way down to the morgue. And at the time, I think Jacoby Hospital was between morgues or they didn't have their act together. So I go down to the morgue, it's a Sunday morning, it's a skeleton crew, young man working there. I have some paperwork, I show it to him, I says, I need to see this this victim of a homicide from last night. He says, okay. So it's not like you see on television with the sliding drawers in the morgue. Mm -hmm. It was a big refrigerated room. So he walks into this refrigerated room. He pulls out a gurney. He pulls the sheet off the gurney. It's a black guy with a beard. I said, no. I says, my victim's a female Hispanic. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. Pulls the sheet over the guy's head, brings him back into the room. Comes out a couple of seconds later with another body, pulls off the sheet. It's an old white wino. And I said, listen, dude, I didn't come here to see every person that got whacked in the Bronx. (laughs) Oh, God. I said, I'm here to see her. I go, let me in there. So I walk into the room and it was like a horror movie. Like there's eight gurneys with bodies all around there. And I immediately recognized my handwriting on the toe tag. And I pulled the sheet off. I said, yeah, that's the victim. I ID her. I go back to the precinct. So when I go back to the precinct, I go upstairs to where the detectives are. And they're celebrating. They're all happy. They're lighting up cigars. I go, what happened? So they first thing in the morning, they went back to the building. And when they hit the hallway of the building, they heard some screaming. Thank God the detectives that went spoke fluent Spanish, because what happened was in the hallway of the building, the three uncles confronted their nephew and they were yelling at him in the hallway like, listen, the cops told us, you know, more than what's going on. What happened to your mother? We demand to know. And he caved and he started telling. He didn't realize the cops hung back. They went behind a stairwell and they had the conversation basically. He was a crackhead. The he had been, you know, thrown out several times. He told his mother, he convinced his mother he cleaned up his act. He was using it again. He started stealing from her. She told him, I want you out. So they got into an argument. He went into the kitchen. He picked up a butcher knife. He stabs her to death. He takes a shower. He takes the uh, the murder weapon in his clothes. He puts it in a plastic bag. And then he leaves the apartment to dispose of the evidence. And what he does is he leaves the apartment door open hoping, you know, it's a Saturday night in the Bronx. You know, she knows everybody on that floor. Someone's going to see the door open. They're going to discover her. They'll call the police. They'll get the ball rolling. He'll come back a couple hours later and go, Jesus, I don't know what happened. So he leaves. He gets rid of the evidence. He comes back three, four hours later, and no one opened the door. So now people have seen him come back and forth. Now he's got a problem. He can't leave again. So what he does is he gets on the phone. He calls the precinct instead of 911 and then calls his uncles over and starts the ball rolling with this. And uh, he was convicted of homicide. And at, at last look, he um, he's still in jail. And that's like 28 years ago. Oh, wow. wow. And the wild thing about the story is the cop that I was working that night, he, he later lost his life. 
two or th three years later, he was working with another guy on a domestic. And I don't know if the story is so long ago, but there was some broken glass involved. I don't know if a mirror got broken or the, or the perp threw a mirror at them, but there was a broken mirror in the room. And when they were struggling to arrest the guy, a shard of glass caught him in the femoral artery in his groin. And he started bleeding out and they rushed him to the hospital and he didn't make it. Oh, wow. What a way to go. I mean, any way to go. But... Any way to go, but yeah, yeah that's a yeah. terrible way to go. Oh my gosh. So a couple of questions occurred to me. One, um, and it's something I've thought about before. How, how do you spend that long in the department seeing this side of humanity and still go on being able to, uh, you know, exist with the rest of us? Um, I, I think it takes a certain personality type to go into law enforcement. I mean, I think this is definitely, I mean, this is a personality type that becomes a nurse and I definitely think there's a personality, not all, but you're able to compartmentalize things. And when you're in the middle of something like this, it's been my experience where I say, oh, shit, th this sucks. This is really bad, but I got to fight through this. You know, it's not going away. I have to get through it. And once it's over, don't take it home with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you sit there and you just let it eat at you, I mean, that's, you know, cops develop, you know, drug and alcohol problems or psychological problems. Uh, you got to be able to, to, to put it in its box. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not that you never look at it again. I mean, obviously I'm talking about it to you, but you know, I don't have nightmares over these things or, or loss of sleep or, you know, that it really bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts ever on writing some uh, true crime fiction? Well, I mean, some of these stories are in my books. I mean, as far as, um, I changed the name, I guess, I mean, I, I don't, in my books, I don't name names. I change the dates, the locations and ranks, but I mean, most of these stories are spurred from actual events. Okay. Okay. Would you say um, maybe that story with, with the, the youth who killed his mother was, was that kind of the craziest homicide that you, that you played a part in? Um, I was just, I'm, I'm working up to a question. I just want to kind of go through some, some, some gruesome details here first. Oh no, no. I had another one. It was a, um, it was, it was about this time of year. It was slow, like a week, weekday night. It was raining out. It was really slow. And the dispatcher gave another car a domestic. So another car, it was, it was slow. So another car decided to back him up. Then the next thing you know, the dispatcher goes, I'm getting multiple calls on this. So my partner and I said, oh, we'll slide over. So now you got three cars showing up to this thing. It was in a garden apartment, a three-story walk up. The first set of cops parked on the side of the building and it was raining. And as they got out of the car, they heard screams coming out of a window. To this day, I don't know what possessed them to do it. I guess when you're in your 20s, you think differently. Instead of going around to the front of the building and going up the stairs to the front door, these two young cops climbed the fire escape. Mm-hmm. And they go up to the window and they look inside and there's a woman laying on the floor and there's a guy standing above her with a butcher knife and he's basically decapitating her. Oh, so God. they get on the radio and now they're screaming into the radio like, get the fucking cavalry. <laughs> there's a guy stabbing this woman to death. So now everyone's racing over. We pull up to the front of the building and we hear about eight, ten shots go off. Mm -hmm. So now we're running up the stairs. As we're running up the stairs, there's a, a young boy coming down the stairs. He was in his teens. He's screaming at us. He's killing my mother. He's killing my mother. Yeah. So we get up to the door and now we're trying to kick in the door and it's quiet in the apartment. And then the next thing you know, you hear 
the two, two of our coworkers screaming in the apartment, don't shoot, don't shoot, you know, because now they're afraid we're going to hit them with friendly fire, right? Mm-hmm. So this, they, you know, they told us their names, don't shoot, don't shoot. So they opened the door and I'll never forget, like when I, we walked into the apartment, it was like someone lit off a pack of firecrackers just from the gunpowder. It's just like a haze of gunpowder in the apartment. And laying on the floor, you've got this woman and she's missing her throat. I mean, it's, it's just literally the only thing holding her head onto her body was her spine and her mouth is wide open. I mean, like, you know, most people like you see on TV and stuff, like they die with their eyes closed, peaceful, not always. And I mean, she's just looking up, staring at me and this is gone. And as we're walking around the floor was, there was so much blood between, you know, what he had done to her and my friend shooting the guy to death that we were literally, your feet was sticking to the floor. And what had happened was the two cops were banging on the window, cursing at him. He turned around with the knife. He goes, oh, you want some of this? He ran up to the window and he threw the window open and he started lunging at them. And back then we carried 38. So, I mean, 38 is a powerful round. And they just, you know, at close range opened up on him and he went flying back into the room. And I'll never forget my friend that killed him said that when he fell back, he goes, it was like slow motion. He goes, he went backwards with the knife in his hand. And when he hit the floor, he goes, it was like a fumble. The knife came out of his hand and went spinning into the next room. And my buddy goes, all I could think about at that in that split second was they're going to think I shot an unarmed man. I go, dude, you're fine. And that's the thing with cops. Cops are more afraid of getting in trouble than getting killed. Right. So we rushed him to the hospital and um, the, the cops and uh, the wildest thing, like NYPD, they don't send you to a tailor. They give you your clothes. It's on you to get your, your, your pants tailored, your shirts tailored. And most cops don't. And my buddy was wearing baggy pants and he noticed in the hospital, there was a slit in his pants. The guy got that close with the knife when he was diving out the window, he slit his pants by his knee and missed his, his knee by like that much. Oh, oh my gosh. Close call. Yeah. Well, you know, um, hearing stories like this makes me think about it. And just cause it's, it's been on my mind, uh, because I keep seeing videos about it, serial killers and in all that time, the 20 years you spent on the force in New York city, um, were there any active serial killers at the time? Any, anything that your cases had to deal with anything like that? Well, there definitely are serial mm-hmm. killers in New York. The thing is like, when I was active in the 80s and 90s, we averaged over 2,500 homicides a year. So, I mean, and the most difficult homicides to solve is if the victim doesn't know the perpetrator. You know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, if, if someone dies, someone dies in their house, murdered in their house, they start doing victimology. Okay. Is the person married? Are they getting along with their neighbors? They start interviewing. Did this person have a problem with somebody? Was there a coworker at work? Are they having problems with their boyfriend or, or girlfriend? When it's an unknown stranger, it makes it so difficult because there's no link. And if they, if they don't leave forensic evidence behind and there are no witnesses, it's next to impossible to solve. I do believe that there are serial killers and they have been serial killers in New York. You know, mentally ill people that you know, they're floating around and if they see the opportunity and no one's around and this is pre video cameras and ring doorbells nowadays, because if you go on any of the NYPD websites, you see photos of these people wanted by the NYPD. Like we didn't have that when I was active, you know, yeah. 
when I retired in 2007, we were just getting a flip phone that would take like a grainy photo. It looked like something from the surface of the moon. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my old partner worked in um, Bronx homicide for over 20 years. And actually he was assigned to working on some old cases with serial killers where, you know, they, now they're pulling out old evidence and going through DNA and feeding mm -hmm. it into the system to see if it's a match with someone that was convicted of a felony. So yeah, I definitely believe there were serial cases going on when I was active. I just never worked on one. I, I did that case that I was telling you about with the, the Audis getting shipped to China. One of the car thieves, I believe, I mean, how can you not call him a serial killer? I mean, we knew, we knew about 13 homicides that he did. I mean, he was just one of these guys. He'd roll up to you with his friends on the back of a motorcycle. And if you didn't get off the bike fast enough when he pointed a gun at you, he'd shoot you. So yeah, I guess you could call him a serial killer because, I mean, he killed people for less than $5,000. So Yeah, yeah. Did you end up catching all those guys that was part of that uh, car theft ring? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they're all in jail. <laughs> Good. Don't want them still running around out there. <laughs> no, they're calling their hills in upstate New York somewhere. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, there's one book that you wrote. It's I wrote it down because I don't want to mess up the title. Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. Would you say that uh, any stories in there are inspired by what you've witnessed? Yeah. Dickheads <laughs> and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die. And the cover was funny because the company that does my book covers was like, I give them the title and they go, what do you want on it? And I says, I don't know. Give me like a fat guy on a ladder doing something dangerous with a beer in his hand. And I mean, boom. I mean, they created it. Uh, that was my first book before I got into writing. I was very apprehensive about writing about the New York City Police Department. But finally, at the urging of friends and family, I did. That book is about the ridiculous things I've seen people get themselves involved in to shorten their life expectancy, running with the bulls, going to Disney World and eating bitch beaters, those big turkey legs while they were obese and riding around in motorized scooters shouting at family members. Yeah, yeah. Kinda... It's just the things that people do to shorten their life expectancy. Oh, sure, Almost yeah. people going into the subway and then urinating on the third rail and getting electrocuted. Yeah, the new uh, Darwin Awards, which I never hear about those exactly. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're bringing it back, man, bringing it back. All right, well, um, are you aware this is going to sound like a silly question but are you aware of any cases in your department in the time you spent there where a psychic or a medium was utilized yes and no it's funny you should say that so in the old days you would walk into the detective squad and on the wall like if you've ever been into like a nursery school you've got like the abcs in cursive and like you know fozzy bear and the cookie monster so if you walked into it in the old days you walked in an NYPD detective squad on the wall, there would be like a paper border and there'd be phone numbers, just phone numbers of different agencies and different things to make your life easier. Sanitation department, um, FBI task force, ATF, DEA, just phone. Numbers. And I'll never forget, like I was in, I was in a, hom a homicide office one time and I saw a psychic. And I started to laugh because that was like the first time I, I saw a phone number that said psychic. Yeah. And I asked one of the detectives, I go, I said, have you ever had a use? He goes, it's a last case resort and there's no <laughs> bank. And like, so it was there. 
But I, I don't know how much credence the homicide detective put. But it's funny you should say that because I did see that once. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know, I know that the police departments do not like to talk about that or admit it if they have. I know that they have just in the you know the research that I've done for this season. Like I know that sometimes they are utilized, but there's often that like you know after the fact, like oh it's so vague. I don't know. I mean, you can't like use it in court. You know that kind of stuff. Here's but, another uh, thing that becomes discovery. Right. So say for argument's sake, you call in, you call in a psychic, like, like you just, this case is going nowhere. Right. And someone says, you know what, let's just, let's call in the psychic. Right. And the psychic comes. All right. Well, now you got to do a DD five, which means it's, it's a who, what, where, when, when. So on October, something, such and such a day and time, we contacted Miss so-and-so a psychic in the department, blah, 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 blah. And she said this, this, and this, right. Now, obviously say it doesn't go anywhere. And then a year from now, you catch the guy and a defense attorney is going through this mound of paperwork. He's looking at your entire case and he's like, he's going to bring it up. Isn't it true that you had no leads in this case and you turned to a psychic? You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where, you know, if it works, great. If it doesn't, you're going to look like a fool. That, that's my opinion. <laughs> Because <laughs> I know how defense attorneys are when they come across something and they jump up yeah. and down, you know, like with that, you know, you, you know, you locked up my defendant, you went to a psychic. <laughs> hey, man, you know, it's a it's a big old weird world out there. We don't understand everything or how it works. It's uh, I agree you know. with you, but I'm just telling you what happened. You know? <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, um, we are kind of coming around the corner here towards the end. But before we hit that, I wanted to give you the stage to uh, just tell, you know, in the spirit of Halloween and the spirit of true crime, darkness, whatever, any story that you want to you want to leave us with anyone, yes, your favorite. I got a bunch. I'll give you two quick ones. So okay. I'll give you death. So there was this lazy cop and he worked in Manhattan. He was a housing cop. They put him on foot. An old man dies in an apartment building, a housing project, like on the 15th floor. The guy was friends with the super. The, the super discovered the guy like soon after he died. Calls the police. This cop shows up. The EMTs show up. Yeah, he's dead. And they go to leave. So the cop, you know, it's a Friday night. He doesn't want to get stuck sitting with this dead body until the medical examiner arrives and says suspicious or not suspicious death. And um, tells the EMTs, can you take this guy out of here? And they go, you know, we can't take him out of here unless he dies in public view. So they leave. So the cop waits about half hour. He gets on the radio and he calls in a cardiac. The same two EMTs come rushing up to the 15th floor. They get off the elevator. The dead guy's now in the hallway. And they go, what the fuck is this? And now the <laughs> cop is like, oh, shit. So he turns around. And he goes, you're not going to believe this. He goes, after you left, the guy jumped out of the bed. He said, oh, shit. He ran through the apartment. He opened the door and he dropped dead again. And they go, no, he didn't. He's got rigor mortis. We can tell you dragged him through the apartment, right? So they, they, they're pitching a bitch. The sergeant shows up. They tell him what happened. He got suspended. They took 30 vacation days, put him on a year probation. They transferred him to another borough. Nowadays, he would have gotten arrested and thrown in jail, but that was the good old bad days. Another wild story is there was this sergeant in my precinct. We used to call him roast beef Ray because all he did was eat roast beef sandwiches. And the guy had no redeeming qualities. He was a miserable son of a bitch. He just, he hated everybody. He liked me. I don't know why he rose <laughs> to be his driver because I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut around him, right? 
So one day we get called to a DOA. So we show up and this middle-aged overweight man dies on the toilet, pleasuring himself to a playboy, right? I mean, it's fairly obvious what happened, right? So the guy's sister shows up and she's crying, right? She's in the next room and, and Roast Beef Ray thinks this is the funniest thing in the world. And he's like, I can't believe this guy died jerking off on the toilet. And, you know, I mean, the guy's sister's there. It's, yeah, it's funny. But I mean, there's a time and place for everything. I mean, I mean, that's how evil this guy was. Not a nice guy. About a year later, he drops dead. He retires and dies like literally months after he died. The guys in the precinct hated, I didn't do this. But the guys in the precinct hated him so bad, they found out where he was buried. They went up to the cemetery one night and threw a party and pissed all over his grave. Oh, no. Yeah, not my kind of thing, but that's how despised this guy was. Well, it's <laughs> Halloween, so I kind of go in the cemetery, two dead guys. Well, word to the wise, anyone listening, be nicer, be better. Very right, yeah. Gonna get your grave peed on. <laughs> All right, Vic. Well, yeah, we are near the end. And I, I mentioned before we started recording, I uh, had some, a couple of questions prepared for you. Just things I uh, I want to know, you know, I'm curious. And, uh, you know, take your time with your answers. No rush. Uh, first one, tell me your best cop joke or prank that you played. Best cop prank. So I'm a detective. I'm working in an office with 20 trained observers. Anytime you do anything, they're on you. They know. So one day it's towards the end of my shift. I had a date. I went upstairs. I changed into a pair of khakis. I grab a cup of coffee. When I go to sit in my chair, my ass gets soaked. I go, oh shit. I jump up. One of the detectives in my office, a practical joker, soaks my chair with ice water. Say, all right, you got me. I run upstairs. I change my pants. I go downstairs. Across the street from our office was a pet store. I go into the pet store, I buy a hundred crickets. Apparently they feed snakes or lizards with these things. Yeah. I got a bag of a hundred crickets. I went into the parking lot with a Slim Jim. I popped open the door to his personal vehicle. I cut the bag and I dumped the crickets in the back seat. Well, the guy wound up having to sell his car. Like he roach bombed it a couple of times and they would die, but then they would start breeding again. And they were jumping around in his car. He wound up having to sell the car. Dude, those those things are disgusting. I used to work in a pet food store and we had to sell those so that people could feed their, you know, reptiles. There's and uh, they stink. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. there's another story from one of my books where there was a cop in my precinct. He wasn't very well liked. And this is the early 90s when Rogaine first came out. He made the mistake of leaving his Rogaine bottle in, in his locker. One of the cops grabbed it, poured the contents in another bottle and put wood stain in it. And then he, he shellacked the top of his head. Got him a fucking ballistic. <laughs> As you might expect. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right. I knew you had some. Um, second question. Um, and be honest. Did you have any rivalries with the fire department? Oh, yeah. All the time. <laughs> yeah. They didn't like us. We didn't particularly like them. Um, it boiled down to a couple of incidents in the 90s with a contract dispute. And this is 30 years ago. I really don't care now. But back then, I think their union, we were supposed to all like hold our ground with the city. And I think their union took the contract first, if memory served me correctly. And then there was a couple of incidents where fistfights ensued. And, you know, the next thing you know, cop, you know, fireman gets pulled over and he's drunk 
They're not taking them to the mm. firehouse no more. They're taking them to jail. So yeah. yeah, there definitely was a rivalry during my time. I didn't get sucked into the drama. I was too busy making arrests. You know, that, that the NYPD, we call them hair bags. That's usually like salty, big mouth old timers in the locker room. Their uniforms look like shit. We call them hair bags. They're like the precinct town criers. You know what I mean? They're the ones, I'll kick his ass. Yeah, okay, just, just sit down. You can't even sit <laughs> All right. So, so it was, it was not a friendly rivalry. I take it. No, no. And then they used to have the annual hockey game and it was like a boxing match. There were more fights in the stands than on the ice. <laughs> well, it's, it's the Bronx, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would expect that <laughs> anyway. Um, all right. So uh, my final question for you, it's not really well thought out, but I, I kind of just want your general thoughts on this and it has to do with that gut feeling. So um, I have been researching, my audience will know this, I've been researching psychics and mediums, and I've specifically been re researching uh, Stargate, Stargate Project. It's uh, CIA, you know. Okay. <laughs> um, they uh, they hired psychics and, and trained them to remote view. Pat Price. I saw that. Yeah, I yeah. There was a really good documentary. Yeah, yeah, The Third Eye Spies. I just watched it again. So fantastic. Um, so Pat Price was one of their most prized psychics. He was a former police officer. Uh, Joe McMonagle, another uh, star psychic of theirs, he was a former soldier. So what they were doing were they were they were pulling folks from very regular blue collar, you know, like the working man jobs, because they saw that they had this increased capacity for this gut feeling in their fields, like people looked to them to lead them out of trouble or to solve the cases because they were just always right they always seem to be right and they talked about this gut feeling and i just want your thoughts on that being a police officer i i would expect that a lot of people in that line of work you do rely on that to some extent like do you think it's like higher in some than others can everybody do it did you ever rely on it so there's definitely listen this our government the russians different governments have looked into this and spent a lot of money into it, right? So there's mm -hmm. definitely something there or a theory to it, whether it works or not. I know cops, especially ones, if you take your craft seriously, for us, it was body language. And you can read things. It's just something's off. I do it now. You know what I mean? I drive my friends crazy because I'll sp just the way someone's acting with their gait, just, just, just the way they look at you. And it's like, something's off something's not right and we used to call it the hairy eyeball so like so so think of it this way say 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 it's 11 o'clock at night and you're coming home from a speaking engagement and you stop at a light by yourself when you're in a rough part of town and a car filled with gangbangers pull up alongside you and they're blasting the music and they're cursing and screwing around and you you give that quick glance and you look ahead and all you want please light change all you want is that light to change. You just want to get on with your life. You, you don't care about them. You just, you want to go your separate way. Cops, when you're in plain clothes, don't have that fear. And we make eye contact with the bad guys when we're in plain clothes. And you'll get that. It's, it's the weirdest thing. We call it the hairy eyeball. Cause like, shit, I just got burned. What happened? I got the hairy eyeball. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> you're sitting in a car by yourself in a target parking lot park backwards trying to read a book but you're looking through a mirror at somebody and you get the and it's like oh it's on 
And yeah, but it, there's definitely, I agree with you. There's something definitely there. I don't know if it's energy or like I said, body language, but yeah, I, I think there could be something there. Now you can't, you, you know, you say something like that in court, you look like a moron. That's another one to defend. Right. So you had a gut feeling. Tell us about this gut feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, man, this has been awesome, man. I, I, I've had so much fun talking to you. Um, where can my audience uh, find out more about you, purchase your books, get their own copies? Uh, where do you want to send them? Sure. So if you just go to Amazon, the book section, and you type in Vic Ferrari, like the car, um, my Amazon book page will come up. I've got six books, four of which are about the New York City Police Department, including Grand Theft Auto, which is everything you want to know about the stolen car industry who was afraid to ask. Um, you could, and they make all my books are $10 paperback. They make great stocking stuffers and all my books are $2.99 ebook download. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Vic Ferrari five zero. Awesome. At Vic Ferrari five zero. I will link um, everything below in the show notes as well uh, to close us out. Would you like to leave us with any final thoughts? I wish everybody a safe and happy holidays coming up. And I want to thank you again for being nice enough to put me on your platform. Awesome. This has been really awesome, Vic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you sincerely to Vic Ferrari for joining me on the show. Vic had so many more incredible stories to share. So I asked him to join me backstage on the Patreon, which he graciously agreed to. Here is just a taste of some of our discussion. So I call the woman up. I says, listen, I says, that the car is there. I, maybe she didn't leave. Maybe she went to work. She goes, listen, I know my daughter. She goes, something's not right. Apartment was, you know, fine. Nothing was disturbed or anything. But her answer machine was lit up like a Christmas tree. Between each slab is a produce scale. Remember the old produce scales? Like your mom would buy a head of lettuce. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what they weigh the organs with. And the Emmy is like, he's got this tool, look like like needle-nose pliers. He's like pulling the bullets out of this guy. And there's a detective there with a cup of coffee. He goes, what do you think? And and the, and the Emmy turns to him, he goes, suspicious suicide. What are you putting in your nose? Like the, is it Vicks? Yeah, the old timers would carry the, the Vicks uh, rub and they would put it, that's actually, they were passing that around at the morgue. How did you feel about that once you realized like, terrible. oh, this is- I felt I felt, because, you know, I kind of had a connection with the family. So in the drug world, they don't cancel your cable or send nasty reminders in the mail. They send a couple of hitters to whack them. They stop this guy dumping a 55 gallon drum in the lot. They go to arrest him and they go, what's in the drum? And he blurts out my girlfriend. Oh, yeah, that kind of that hit a little differently than I was expecting it to there at the end. Once again, that is just a teaser from our continued discussion on Patreon. If you would like to hear more, get all the juicier details and tidbits, jump on and become a patron. You can listen to this backstage discussion as well as numerous other guests I've had the pleasure of welcoming onto the show. And you'll have access to these bonus chats as well as a special shout out right here on an upcoming episode, parapsychology info and articles that I've used for research, invitation to the PGP book club and my undying gratitude for as little as three bucks a month, y'all. Please check out my guest and his work at the links I've included in the show notes. Dickheads and debauchery, guys. I mean, need I say more? But also NYPD through the Looking Glass, Law and Disorder, and the NYPD's Flying Circus. Check them out. That is a wrap. It's a dangerous world out there, folks. 
whether it's a force that's seen or unseen. So please stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.